Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. I'm your Mr. Science Eddie, and I'm so glad to have you all back in lab. Um, today is our first official lecture. There is a lot to cover. Um, so I'm going to just jump right into it. I will be using my lecture notes uh, to guide this podcast. And I've also decided to split this podcast into two parts um, just for timing issues sake, because like I said, there's a lot of material to cover. So kind of just, you know, not to overwhelm you. Um, so first part of this podcast will focus um, on information about um, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. And the second part of lecture is going to then delve into um, the essential virology, uh, the basic science behind uh, the vaccines that have been developed, and what an emerging infectious disease is. Um, so I'm not going to be using a script um, for this podcast or really any of my podcasts going forward. So I may fumble my words here a little bit, and I do apologize. I promise that I'll get right back on track. But just think of it as an actual lecture experience. Like, I'm actually there talking to you. So, uh, really to introduce the overview of this two-part lecture series, um, it's, it's intended really to get us all caught up on what is SARS-CoV-2 in the context as a viral pathogen and an emergent infectious disease. Um, so... In this first part, I will deliver some clinical information, um, but I'm not going to be giving you the mechanism of disease. We actually really don't know the mechanism of disease yet. Um, there's really not too much um, known about that, and there's still active research um, being conducted to understand how this virus really causes the disease. There are generalities about any uh, infectious disease, but we do like to know specifics just so we could develop better treatments um, for that uh, pathogen. And so following the really the brief clinical information and just the overview of this um, of this disease, then I'll delve into um, the biology of a virus, the mechanics of the vaccine, and then kind of start our discussion on emerging infectious disease. Um, so uh, SARS-CoV-2 is, is an emergent viral pathogen. And what that means is that we've really never seen it before. It's completely new to us um, for one reason or another. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's left the world at a standstill last year because we're still struggling to understand what it is, how it works, and how to approach it. And I, I really hope we are at that turning point right now with the vaccines. Um, unfortunately, in the USA, um, the response to the virus is really hampered and hammered by politics and the spread of misinformation. So really in this podcast, I really hope to kind of tease apart that misinformation and give you um, the correct information so you know how what's really going down. And so there are a few points um, I do want to just accomplish in these two lectures. So firstly, I want you to become familiar with, with what SARS-CoV-2 is and how it relates to COVID-19. Um, I want you to be able to distinguish between mortality rate and case fatality rate, as well as distinguish between mortality and morbidity. And we'll get to that soon. Um, then hitting our second part of the lecture, I just really want you to understand what a virus is, um, why it's harder to treat, uh, really, any viral illness is pretty hard to treat. Um, I want you to become familiar with how viruses do evolve and how this really uh, plays out with our own immunity and how our immunity to a virus may wane over time. And that shouldn't come as a surprise uh, based on the mechanics I'm going to discuss. 
and then I then want you to be, gain a basic understanding of how these COVID vaccines work, how are they developed, and I will also attempt to address some safety concerns that, um, that are circling out there. Um, I actually was encouraged to discuss them a little bit from some feedback I got. Then lastly, I'm just going to briefly hit on what an emerging infectious disease is because I'm going to uh, circle back around to that in a future podcast. Um, so uh, just a quick thing. I did mention in the syllabus lecture that I do want to publish my lecture notes or just put them out there, I should say, uh, for y'all to read them um, along with my resources. I'm still working on getting that up and running. Um, I do have to develop a web page for that. And this last week, I've just been pretty much focused on getting this lecture done to get this out there. So I, as soon as I have that available, I will make a brief announcement um, on the, as a podcast to let you know they are available. Um, so let's just hop into it then. So uh, SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that causes COVID-19. Let's just start there. Um, we know more about the transmission of the virus and how it presents clinically than we do um, about how it does it. So that, like I said, that is still an active area investigation. And um, I do want to hold an office hour about what we think the current thinking is of how the virus interacts with the immune response. Um, it's actually pretty cool based on what I've read so far. And so uh, coronavirus, what does that mean? Um, so uh, SARS-CoV-2 is one of three recent coronaviruses within the last 20 years to emerge that has been capable of causing severe uh, respiratory illness. Uh, usually when we do have a coronavirus infection, it produces only mild illness, like the common cold in immunocompetent individual. Immunocompetent meaning their uh, immune system is healthy and intact. And so... Um, when we examined this new viral pathogen, uh, we found that it was very similar to the SARS-CoV virus that we had in 2002 to 2003. Um, it had what we uh, say is 80% uh, similarity, meaning that the genetic code of this new virus, um, you know, 80% of it lined up with SARS-CoV, uh, which is why we call this new pathogen SARS-CoV-2. Oh, I should also mention, what does SARS mean? SARS means severe acute respiratory syndrome, basically what the virus ends up doing. Um, and when we compare this virus, um, SARS-CoV-2, to MERS-CoV, which uh, was troublesome a few, uh, few years ago in the Middle East, uh, again, producing a severe uh, respiratory illness, it only was found to be 50% similar. So, um, although SARS-CoV-2 is related to um, SARS-CoV, um, they're, they're still pretty distinct. So, unlike SARS-CoV, SARS-CoV-2 is a lot more transmissible, meaning it's a lot easier to pass from human to human for some reason. Um, so, I also want to point out, because this is a, a big point of contention, when we had the emergence of this pathogen, uh, people saying, oh, it's no worse than the flu. Well, let's kind of dissect that really quick. Um, back then, uh, our statistics were limited to uh, a, a couple of months of data versus a yearly statistic we have available for flu. If you were to extrapolate the number of deaths back then, you already saw it was going to surpass the flu deaths to begin with. Um, secondly, it is an entirely different pathogen than the flu with its own mechanism, uh, the own, its own way of how it interacts with the immune system. Um, Thirdly, which drives the point more home, I believe, is that 
SARS-CoV-2 is already demonstrated to be 100% more transmissible than the flu. Um, so I'm sure we all heard about the r naught value. Either you've watched one of my favorite movies, Contagion, or uh, just from any press releases you hear from CDC or your local health officials discussing the r naught. Um, what the r naught basically communicates is, on average, how many new cases does one infected case generate? Um, so you do get a decimal point here, and that just involves really the total of new cases versus the original cases. Um, but when we're discussing SARS-CoV-2, the reproductive value, or the r naught of SARS-CoV-2 is anywhere between 2 to 2.5. The flu is 1.25. So what does this mean in the real world? So basically, when you have one case of SARS-CoV-2, you're more likely to produce two new cases. With the flu, it's just one. And so uh, coronaviruses, they are found in many different species. Um, you can find them in birds, you find them in bats, uh, camels, uh, I believe in cats and dogs as well. So uh, on their own, they could be potentially detrimental to the agricultural industry, which is why there is, is research on the veterinary side to kind of get them under control. Um, it also could play into what we call the One Health approach, where there's a synergy of human medicine with veterinary medicine to get um, certain diseases under control. Um, and that plays into uh, a zoonosis or a zoono zoonotic disease. And what is that? As I'm pretty sure we all have heard that term already thrown around um, in media stories or whatnot. Uh, what a zoonosis is, is a, a disease that is capable of um, spreading from human to humans from animals. So it originated in, the, in an animal host and it spread to humans for one reason. And we call that a spillover event. Um, so some, the virus has had an ability or an acquired an ability to infect the human host um, in some way. And this tends to involve subtle changes in the viral genetic code or the pathogen's uh, genetic code. Um, so you might think like, well, how can like a, a bat virus or um, a bird virus infect humans? Well, it has to do with our shared evolutionary history. Um, evolution really doesn't produce things out of the blue. It enacts on things that already exist. And so with that, with you know, our common ancestors, there are going to be certain molecular characteristics that you and I are going to share with you know, our cat, our dog you know, a mouse, a chicken. They're not going to be 100%, but they may be very, very similar to the point where um, you may acquire, a pathogen may acquire an ability to just play on those similarities enough for the jump. And then when you do have a pathogen jump from uh, one host species to another, it, it may acquire characteristics within that initial infection or infections to then become more prevalent in that new host. Um, so SARS-CoV-2 was originally thought to be a strict zoonosis. Unfortunately, then human-to-human -human transmission was remarked. Um, and that was a very significant turning point in the beginning of this pandemic. Um, so all uh, coronaviruses are also thought to originate in bats. And the interesting thing is that the bats do not get sick when they're carrying this uh, virus with them, these viruses with them. So we say they co-evolved with the virus. Uh, meaning they've evolved a way um, to kind of deal with it. Maybe it's in a very effective immune response or something. Um, so they don't get sick, and the virus just pretty much is a, is, just goes along for the ride, living its best life, you know, reproducing, replicating, and surviving, you know, just spreading that its genes in a way. 
And so we call the, we say the bats are the reservoirs. And um, we, we're really not sure at this point how that virus came from the bat into us. It's possible that uh, some people got really close to infected bats and, you know, that that bat just just happened to have the right virus to play on that nuanced similarity between, you know, a bat protein and human protein, and bam, you know, the human host was infected. Or another idea is that um, there was an intermediate, intermediate host, basically meaning there was some kind of animal in the middle. He, it was the middleman that got infected by the bat, and then it got close to humans, and the humans got infected. Like I said, we really don't know. That's still a huge mystery. Um, uh, and just to kind of give you an idea, like, you know, that this is really not a unique case, uh, the influenza virus is also another uh, case of a zoonosis uh, coming from birds and pigs. And so how does this virus really start affecting our bodies? So it infects the respiratory tract. It is a respiratory illness. Um, so it can at first infect the nose, and then uh, it'll start traveling downward. And so one resource I came across, which I'll link, kind of uh, divided it up into three distinct stages. So stage one began in the nose. Um, you know, you really may not have symptoms. So this may be the asymptomatic carriers early in the disease or even pre-symptomatic. And I'll get into the nuance uh, description of that in a bit. Um, so it starts in the nose, it replicates in the nose, and it starts traveling downward. So it starts hitting your upper respiratory tract, your throat, and you're conducting airways. So that's where you're gonna probably get your dry cough, your fever, uh, your feelings of, you know, something's off, and that fatigue. And in 80% of cases, it stops there. Your immune response is able to launch a robust enough, a robust enough response to handle the virus there and, you know, take care of it. Um, unfortunately, in 20% of the cases, it goes down further into your lower respiratory tract, to your um, alveoli, where you do have your gas exchange taking place, where you take in that oxygen. And so here, um, you develop a lower respiratory infection, uh, which we could call viral pneumonia. Pneumonia just being an infection of the lungs, or the lower, um, in those lower, lower parts of the lungs. And so this is where you start getting that shortness of breath, like you can't breathe, uh, you get super fatigued easily, uh, the fever may come back or, you know, be even worse. Um, and so 20% uh, of the people do develop uh, a, a severe uh, presentation um, and a portion of those develop a critical presentation, I meaning they need to go to ICU. Um, so with the severe portion of, of, of cases, it's more of a pneumonia. You do have an infection down there. Pneumonia, basically, um, it starts filling your lungs with fluid, either inside the alveolar spaces, that little air sacs, or the space between, you know, where the oxygen is and where your blood is. Um, and it just, it really makes it harder for oxygen to cross that barrier. Um, and then in the critical cases, you develop what's called acute respiratory distress. And so um, acute respiratory distress can develop from pneumonia, but not all cases of pneumonia are going to develop into acute respiratory distress. Um, so acute respiratory distress is a potentially fatal condition. Um, basically, in a nutshell, your lungs are so inflamed, they're so damaged, they're so swollen, they're so wet, um, you even have them collapsing on themselves that you you can't breathe, and it's it, it's a medical emergency, 
and um, that's these patients end up in the ICU on the ventilators to help get that oxygen in. Um, so, um, but we've also noticed that uh, the other organs can be affected by the virus. And so you can have a local generation of virus within the lungs and it somehow gains access to the bloodstream and it's able to disperse to other um, targets, other hosts. And so this may lead to heart issues uh, that we've seen in, in um, COVID, myocarditis, uh, liver damage, kidney damage, as well as increased risk of blood clots. And so... Um, in critical patients as well, you do have a risk of developing sepsis. So sepsis is a, a severe immune reaction, and this can lead to um, your blood pressure dropping so low that uh, resuscitatory efforts are not able to restore to normal, and you eventually go into shock, and shock produces widespread organ um, dysfunction, even failure, and potentially death. Um, sepsis is a very fatal condition on its own. Uh, the tricky thing is that uh, with COVID, you cannot really distinguish the symptoms of sepsis from the uh, viral illness itself. So you really have to keep a close eye on these patients and um, pretty much be on your toes. Um, but the cause of sepsis in COVID patients is still under investigation. We really, really don't know why we see uh, these patients going to septic shock. Um, it could be their it's the response to the virus itself, what we call a viral sepsis, which I've read is pretty uncommon, um, but may not have been heard of. You can never say never in medicine. Um, secondly, it could also maybe be due to a secondary infection. So when you do have respiratory illnesses like um, COVID and like the flu, you can damage your lungs in such a way where they become um, unable to fend off inhaled invaders. And so you're able to inhale bacteria, or if you're intubated, you get bacteria in, and your clearance mechanisms and your, um, your immune mechanisms in place in the lungs are just, they're bad. They're not really good anymore. And so these bacteria can take hold in the lungs and it's a good food source for them. You know, they're protected. They could just basically live their best life, uh, replicate and cause another infection. So a secondary infection. And so uh, this itself may produce that sepsis and that septic shock. We still don't know. Um, I do postulate, however, that it, we may also see sepsis because of the lower oxygen levels in the blood. Um, so when you tissues do become oxygen starved, they are damaged. And when tissue gets damaged for one reason or another, it does become inflamed. So it's possible that you know this systemic hypoxia uh, leads to widespread uh, tissue hypoxia, which could lead to widespread tissue damage, and then you have systemic inflammation. I don't know. That's just my conjecture. Um, but in my head, it does make sense. But like I said, we, we're still investigating why uh, critical patients develop sepsis. Um, so when we discuss severe and critical illness, there are a few points that need to be discussed. Um, so as I said before, uh, we do notice that some patient populations are disproportionately affected um, in, by COVID in terms of the severity of disease. So those who are older, the elderly, and those with underlying conditions are more likely to um, have severe illness. Uh, why? The jury is still out, um, but there are some ideas. So um, it could be, at least for the elderly, 
um, related to the social factors arising when you do get older. Um, so you're less likely to have social support, less likely to have people checking in on you. Um, uh, you don't really have that social circle anymore. Um, you may have uh, a lower level of income. And you know, income does a lot of stuff. It, it means you can go to the doctor, you can get to the doctor. Um, so that, that may kind of play into that. But we also, there also may be a biological underpinning when it comes to aging. And so with aging, you do have a natural decline in organ function. It's inevitable. Um, so how does that kind of play into that? Well, when you get older, for example, your, your lungs become less elastic. So they're really harder to inflate to begin with. And when you do have something like a viral infection, you know, um, it's just going to make it harder already to breathe. And you kind of overlay that on top of, you know, that decline in lung function. Well, it kind of makes sense then why uh, you might need oxygen therapy. You might be need to be ventilated. Um, uh, why you might develop more severe complications. So it's kind of like, um, it, it just kind of stacks up on top of each other. Um, not only that, another example could be, you know, with that oxygen deprivation, your body kind of la launches into this panic response. Like, hey, you know, I need to get oxygen, you know, to everything. So it actually does increase your heart rate. Um, so that's why um, tachycardia is a symptom of anemia. Um, so you start stressing your heart to pump a lot faster. Um, uh, there may be changes already in the heart due to aging that make it just harder to function. And so then you're, you have a, a, a heart that's already, you know, inherently quote unquote damaged, um, now working harder and it now needs more oxygen for itself. Well, guess what? You're not getting enough oxygen. So again, it kind of compounds on that. Um, Pre-existing conditions. So we do see pre-existing conditions occurring uh, a lot. They're more likely to be found in older populations. Uh, chronic illness, um, like cancer, heart disease, uh, COPD, and all that. Um, so it, it, it just may be, you know, it plays with the age thing. Well, maybe elderly, elderly individuals are more uh, affected because they have these pre-existing conditions. But not only that, but some pre-existing conditions, um, again, just like the age-related decline in, in uh, function, can make it harder for your organs to work um, just as is. Not only that, some pre-existing conditions can also damage these organ systems. So diabetes, for example, is associated with kidney damage. You know, and COVID we know can cause uh, uh, kidney disease. It could cause kidney damage as well. So it kind of, again, it stacks on top of each other. Um, also, your immune system does change as you age from, you know, birth to death. Um, so this kind of plays into two things right here. We still really don't know why children are less likely to develop severe illness. Now, this does not mean they're not contagious, they're not infectious. They, they very much are. Um, and they can be a, a, a pool of asymptomatic carriers. Um, secondly, this decline in immune function, uh, a, a natural decline in immune function with age may also play into why um, elderly individuals are more likely to develop severe and critical illness. Um, but we are still trying to understand why or exactly how the virus interacts with the immune system. And, and like I said, um, I do plan an office hour on that because it's, it's pretty cool from what I've read. Um, now, now, with all this talk of 
elderly individuals, I just want to drive the point home that it does not mean you're not going to see severe and critical illness in young adults or younger patients. It is still possible, very much still possible. So don't let those small percentage numbers like fool you like, oh, you know, it's not really going to happen. Well, no, you do have cases that are happening. Um, it's just, you know, a, a bad draw there when it comes to these patients. Um, for, for example, there was a case of a healthy uh, young Chicago woman in her 20s. Um, she actually had to get a, a double lung transplant after dealing with COVID because her lungs were so scarred. They were so full of holes from that inflammatory process, from the um, acute respiratory distress. They just were no longer functional. And so... Um, I just mentioned pulmonary fibrosis, which we are seeing in some younger patients. And what that is, is um, you have all this scar tissue uh, uh, basically dumped into the lungs during the healing process. And scar tissue does not function as the way as normal tissue does. So you end up changing the properties of that tissue. And by changing the properties of the tissue, you change the way the organ can function. Um, so with fibrosis, it it, the scarring, your lungs don't expand as easily as they should. So it's harder for you to get oxygen and push in the carbon dioxide out. Um, so you have the decline in lung function. And this puts you at risk for pulmonary hypertension as well as associated right heart, uh, I'm sorry, not right heart, uh, left, hearted, uh, left side heart failure, or just heart failure in general, because uh, left side can, can spread to right side. Um, you're also at more risk now for lung cancer if you do have pulmonary fibrosis. And um, as we all know, scars tend to be permanent. So this is a permanent condition. Um, so fibrosis is permanent and it, it, it's a potential complication in younger patients. Not only that, I'm sure we all heard uh, news stories about what's called MIS-C and MIS-A. What those are, it stands for multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children and multi-system inflammatory syndrome in adults. Um, so in a nutshell, you basically have this system-wide inflammation that can lead to cardiac dysfunction, um, organ dysfunction, and shock. Um, it's, it's bad. Um, so I found a statistic um, from the CDC. As, uh, this is from July 2020. The number may have changed now, but this is kind of the, kind of the drive the point home from then, is that 50% of cases in children that were reported to the CDC at that time, uh, they were PCR negative, but antibody positive. So um, <clears throat> we really don't know right now if the MIS-C is uh, the result of a persistent infection in organs outside the lungs, um, or if it's what's called a post-infectious process, basically a leftover immune response, probably the antibodies um, circulating there. So um, post-infectious syndromes and illnesses are not really unheard of. Um, you do see it in rheumatic heart disease and post-infectious glomerulonephritis, which can occur after a strep throat or infection with S. pyogenes. Um, so, you know, you really shouldn't be surprised to hear about these certain things, but um, we really don't know yet what's causing it. We just know it exists, and it's a complication in younger and and younger patients. Um, so uh, just one last point is that I'm going to link the story in the uh, podcast um, page, uh, but there is a case of a 
35 year old bodybuilder in Arizona and this guy was hulking like I saw pictures of him this guy was as, as healthy as healthy can be eating right as you know as most bodybuilders do lifting all the time so he's physically active you know this guy never expected for him to get as sick as he did and he was in ICU for a while um, so really I just list the, these cases these examples here to show you like it's not really a disease of the elderly it's a disease of everybody um, and there can be some factors in play that we really don't understand yet that can disproportionately affect the elderly, but you can definitely still see severe and critical illness in younger patients. It's a threat to everybody. Um, actually, two more groups I just want to uh, just mention really quick is that we also do uh, have evidence that there's more, there's risk for more serious illness too in men and most definitely in people of color. Um, so it's possible you do see biological factors coming into play. Maybe, um, you know, the men are just kind of built a little differently because we do have a different hormonal profile than women. Um, people of color, maybe there's some kind of genetic predisposition there. Uh, we really don't know. I would hazard maybe it has to do more with social factors, um, how there's this machismo amongst men. Um, just the way how men are versus how women are, just and it, how that does relate to our health. Um, same with people of color. People of color are more likely to have um, lower levels of income, um, maybe um, occupations that allow them to take sick time or take care of themselves as well as they should. So we really don't know. So uh, just to kind of wrap that up really quick, when we do discuss the context of any, um, when we do discuss the con the concept of health, it's not really it's not strictly a biological concept now. It's also a psychosocial concept. Um, so we call this more the public health approach where we start, um, where we acknowledge that health and health outcomes are, are a synergy of biology, but also our social environment. Um, so how does this virus spread? Um, so it is documented to be by droplet transmission. And so droplets are basically large, um, I guess you could say large, uh, wet molecules in air that can be expelled when we cough and when we sneeze. You inhale them um, and voila, most likely get infected. Um, so this tends to occur within one meter of somebody coughing or sneezing. Um, Another possible mode of transmission is by contaminated surfaces or what we call fomites. So fomites are basically um, um, inanimated uh, surfaces that, that have been contaminated. You know, we touch it and we touch um, our face, our nose, our mouth, our eyes. It gets in there, you know, again, possible infection. The interesting thing is that how long the virus persists on these surfaces relies on the materials. Um, so it could be anywhere from hours to days, I read. It just really depends. Um, so that's why I, we start seeing more uh, rigorous uh, sanitation procedures where we're going to try to cover our bases to make sure, you know, people aren't touching, you know, these contaminated surfaces. Um, two other interesting modes of transmission that have been posited um, or posed for this virus. Um, first one I'm going to discuss is airborne. Um, so airborne is similar to droplet, but these particles are a lot smaller and they stay in the air longer and can travel further. So when something is airborne, um, it, the, the concern is it travels further than one meter or three feet. 
Um, but right now the current thinking is that airborne transmission is really only a concern in clinical or hospital settings where you actually are doing things to produce these aerosols. So um, like intubation, for example. Uh, the last uh, route of transmission is the interesting one, fecal oral. So here uh, we do know that COVID does can produce diarrhea and there may be viral shedding in there. I, there were some studies conducted in sewage uh, plants that actually we're trying to detect um, uh, the COVID um, RNA in there and they actually did find it in sewage water. Um, but the, the idea is that, you know, you know, you have to use the restroom, you touch something because uh, your hands are soiled and now that's a contaminated surface and then, you know, you touch your mouth and it goes in there and now you have um, um, infection of your gastrointestinal uh, tract. So um, when we do discuss the transmission of COVID, it, it, it does remind us that, you know, we need to practice good hygiene, you know, wash your hands, sanitize surfaces, um, practice social distancing, but also wearing masks. I know masks have been a very uh, controversial subject for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, the thing is they do work. They do reduce uh, the number of infectious droplets you do disperse from talking, coughing, sneezing. Um, yeah, they're not 100% effective, but think about it. Is really anything 100% effective? Are you really going to dismiss something that's 70, 90% effective because it's not 100% effective, but it's still a pretty good way of preventing yourself or somebody else from getting sick? It's kind of silly if you think about it. Um, I actually had a very colorful conversation uh, with a woman about this outside of Target not too long ago. Um, and in that conversation, she brought up the fact that her friend believed uh, masks don't work, and hence she didn't believe they work because they can see their breath. Um, so yeah, masks are not really going to cover that little nasal ridge the whole entire way. Um, so I'm going to link a video by the Exploratorium that actually did, um, like a little fun, you know, experiment with the masks. Um, and you do see air still coming up from the nose region. Um, but again, it's not as much as, as the air that I expel when I'm talking coughing or sneezing, there's still a significant reduction and it goes a different way, you know, interacts with the hair. So probably those viral particles hit your hair, stay there, or even your face. So you're still preventing it from getting to other people. Um, so if you see your breath though, in your really cold environment, it could either be one from that nasal ridge area or two, you need a snugger, a, a more snugger fit mask or three, you just need a new mask, right? So just last point on the mask, not all masks are created equal. N95s are the most effective, um, but please try to reserve those for your healthcare providers. Um, and gaiters or those ski masks are the least effective. So with uh, surgical masks and cloth masks falling in the middle. So uh, please do mask up. Um, now, there's, there's talk about the incubation period of this virus, which is why we saw the quarantine periods um, last up to two weeks. So what an incubation period is, is the time from successful exposure to developing symptoms of the disease. Um, for COVID, it's anywhere from two to 14 days with five to six days being on average. Um, interesting thing is that you are infectious a few days prior to showing symptoms. I think it's, I heard it's about two to three days prior to you showing symptoms, you are infectious. Um, so that's just something to consider in the back of your head. Um, now I did mention successful exposure right now. 
So not really every encounter with a pathogen is going to be productive. It's not going to produce a disease. This is multifactorial and we'll explain. I'll start uh, delving more into this topic in a subsequent podcast. Um, so now that I kind of mentioned a little bit, um, transmission can occur from an asymptomatic individual, uh, which is different from a pre-symptomatic individual, and obviously when you're symptomatic. Um, so pre-symptomatic is, is really in that that kind of grace period be in that incubation period before you show the symptoms. Um, asymptomatic is a little different. So basically you, you end up showing no uh, clinical signs of the disease, but that does not mean the virus is not actively replicating your body and launching immune response. Um, it's just for some reason, your immune response is really good at handling it and clearing out quickly, but a few things are going to get away. It's not going to be a hundred percent. So, you're still able to pass it along to people. Um, and this is not a, a, a phenomenon that's unique to COVID. You do see it in other infectious disease. I think the prime example is HIV. So uh, following HIV exposure, following the successful infection, you do get like a flu-like illness two weeks after, more or less, and maybe not even that. Um, but you're pretty much asymptomatic for months or years beyond that. But you're still capable of infecting people because you do have a high viral load in your blood. So again, asymptomatic transmission is not unheard of. It's nothing new. Some diseases do it, some diseases don't. Um, so again, I, I already hinted that maybe these asymptomatic carriers exist because they have a really good initial immune response to handle that virus, but you know, they're still going to shed virus most likely. Some things are still going to get out. My other idea um, is that perhaps people ignore very subtle signs of illness um, because they feel it's part of their normal. So um, people may dismiss a headache as like, oh, I'm just feeling dehydrated. Oh, I'm stressed. Oh, the scratchy throat maybe because I left the window open or it's my post-nasal drip acting up. You know, we, dis we dismiss these very subtle signs of it. So that could possibly be it because you don't go to the doctor, right? And symptoms are very subjective sometimes. So that, that could be another reason why we do see these asymptomatic individuals. Um, <clears throat> so kind of on the last stretch here for our SARS-CoV-2 uh, portion of the podcast, um, there is no cure, but there are treatments being investigated right now to help manage and reduce um, symptoms. Um, so the first one I'm going to touch on, it's not, excuse me, not really related to managing COVID, it's to prevent complications of COVID. So if you go to the hospital, chances are you will be administered antibiotics sometimes, um, especially in ICU or critical state or intubated. And this is not really to treat a viral infection, but to uh, prevent you from getting sick just by staying in the hospital, um, from contracting a hospital-acquired infection. And so it's a prophylactic treatment uh, with antibiotics. And the, really the concern with COVID, though, is preventing that bacterial pneumonia I, I discussed a little while ago. Um, the problem with prophylactically this prescribing antibiotics is that you may contribute to the rise of um, antibiotic resistance in, um, in the local population, you know, in the region, etc., um, and this is why uh, there is now concern about something called supergonorrhea, which we'll discuss in, I believe it's my 
third or fourth podcast, I'm planning to discuss that. It's actually pretty interesting. Um, so now these are the next four I'm going to discuss are, are more COVID pertinent um, drugs. So the first one, the infamous one, hydrochloroquine. So it's an antimalarial drug and it's been used in uh, some room to help manage rheumatoid arthritis, I believe. Um, and, you know, it, it was shown in a test tube to um, inhibit viral replication, the, the replication of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. But um, as, as you should know, just because something is happening in the test tube does not necessarily mean it's going to happen in the body. The test tube is a highly idealized condition. The body is not. Um, so that's why then you will have to go from test tube to clinical trials to see if it actually does work. There's a clinical benefit. And even there's a nuanced detail there. Um, so um, there, there were two studies that did come across. There was one done in Spain, I believe, in March, April with HCQ. It didn't work. Uh, they actually had to discontinue the study. Um, then NIH re- uh, did, released its results from its own clinical trials with HCQ study. Again, you really didn't see it worked. So uh, what was this? Where did this all come from? Where did, oh, HCQ is going to be the miracle drug. Well, it was a very flawed study conducted in South France um, by Goutret and his colleagues. Um, so this is where we got our quote-unquote, preliminary evidence, and it wasn't really evidence whatsoever. Um, I, I probably will do an office hour just to explain how bad this paper was. Um, it was terrible science, and this, I think, will kind of set you up to understand um, how science should be and how science shouldn't be. But um, in a nutshell, it, it didn't even held up to own internal standards. They didn't even finish testing all their patients. They didn't even set up the study right. They, did, they used the wrong statistical methods. It was just absolute garbage. It was trash. It should have been thrown in the dumpster, and that dumpster set on fire. Not only that, uh, the lead author, uh, Goutret, was actually the editor-in-chief of the journal that published the article. So you have a severe conflict of interest there. Anyways, uh, with the follow-up studies from Spain and NIH following the publication of that preliminary data in February 2020, there has been no sufficient evidence to say that HCQ um, does help manage or uh, treat uh, COVID-19. So please, 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 please just uh, understand that. Um, and since I did mention um, in vitro studies, I'm just going to quickly mention animal studies as well, just because something uh, works in a monkey or a rat, again, it's not going guarantee, to it's not guaranteed to work in a human. Um, very similar, but still two very different and unique systems to consider. And now for the promising treatments, the ones that may work. Um, so I'm sure we all heard of remdesivir, which was given um, an EUA in May 2020 here in the United States, EUA standing for Emergency Use Authorization from the FDA. Um, so uh, remdesivir is nothing new. It's been there. Um, it actually was originally developed to treat hepatitis C and respiratory syncytial virus years ago. Unfortunately, it did not work, but it still was there uh, just in case it may on the off chance work for another virus. Um, there were studies done when SARS and MERS were the thing, and it did show to be effective against them. So it got scientists thinking, uh, researchers thinking, hey, maybe it might be effective against uh, SARS-CoV-2. 
And so an in vitro study was conducted, or vitro meaning in a test tube, and it actually did show to inhibit viral replication. So then this is now the jumping off point. We now see it's working in the test tube. Now let's do as we should and go to clinical trials. Uh, preliminary evidence from um, February uh, did show it, it did help patients a little bit. Um, so that's how we kind of got launched into the EUA from the FDA. And then we had an even larger study conducted, as we should, um, to kind of see if there is evidence, more evidence supporting that notion. And so this larger study was called the Adapted COVID-19 uh, Treatment Trial. And it was conducted here in the United States, I believe. And it actually did demonstrate that the antiviral uh, remdesivir did have a benefit to hospitalized patients. Now, mind you, hospitalized patients. Um, so these patients who need to go to the hospital for moderate, severe, and critical illness. There was a benefit to them, um, maybe not so much for mild uh, people who you know just have the cough and the fever, etc. Um, well, just the cough and the fever, you know, the very mild symptoms. Um, so then how really does this drug work? I think that's something we should all be familiar with. Um, just to understand, you know, uh, how what we take and how it does it. Um, so it it, it actually binds to a protein responsible for helping the virus replicate in our cells and it slows down um, <clears throat> how well or how fast that virus really can just be replicated and be produced. So you have a lower viral load, uh, most likely translates into um, you can have less internal spread within the, in um, your body, so less tissues infected, less you have to deal with, um, so less damage. Um, you have less inflammation and your muscles probably has a better uh, ability to catch up to it and you have just better healing in general. So remdesivir was shown to shorten hospital stays in these patients. Um, just uh, two little side notes about it. The author suggested maybe it could be used to prevent uh, disease progression in some patients. Um, they also did note that, hey, it's not going to be sufficient treatment for everyone. Um, and so you still have to do some more research to kind of play around, maybe get a cocktail of drugs going to help really better manage um, COVID with remdesivir thrown in the mix. Now, the next drug I'm sure we all have heard about is dexamethasone. Um, so what that is, it's a steroid, but it's not a steroid like testosterone. No, um, that's actually a, it's a, that's a misconception I've heard thrown around a couple of times that people refuse steroid therapy because they think they're going to be getting, you know, testosterone. That's not the case. Um, what this is, it's a steroid. Uh, I'm sorry. It's a glucocorticoid, glucocorticoid, um, like cortisol. And so, um, what, what we've seen so far is that, uh, more specifically from the recovery study that was conducted, I believe in the UK, is that uh, dexamethasone reduced mortality in patients requiring su uh, supportive oxygen therapy, like they need to be ventilated or they're given oxygen. So it did help them. Um, it didn't so much help patients who had milder illness. Now this is uh, a nuanced details to why we're sometimes hesitant to give glucocorticoids um, to uh, patients who are dealing with infectious disease. So the way that these class of drugs operate, these steroids operate, is that they actually suppress the immune system. They kind of pump the brakes on it. Um, and this could be handy in a lot of cases, uh, especially autoimmune conditions.
But when it comes to infectious disease, you know, you kind of have to play it around. You have to really uh, distinguish, okay, is the tissue damage from the pathogen or is it from an over-exaggerated immune response? And that's where the recovery trial kind of came in. Um, so, <clears throat> like I said, they really found no clinical benefit giving the, this steroid to patients with mild illness. The outcome wasn't different. There was no difference in the mortality between those treated early on um, those with mild illness who were treated early on from those in the placebo group, those who were not given the drug, those who were given a sugar pill. Um, the difference came when you gave it to the patients with severe and critical illness. You did reduce the mortality rate. And so um, this kind of plays into the idea that it's actually, it's pretty cool that I came across this, um, that um, unlike in other respiratory uh, illness like influenza, um, COVID is associated with what's called a delayed acute respiratory distress. And in influenza, it tends to occur early on in the disease. In COVID, it comes later. Um, so this gives rise to the notion, well, maybe um, the uh, respiratory we see later on in COVID has to do more with the immune response itself than the virus itself. And so that's where it kind of was a jumping off point for the study and why the results should not be shocking. Um, so it kind of lends some evidence to that thinking um, that the, R, the ARDS that we see in COVID is more of an over-exaggerated immune response um, than it is from the virus itself. And so one last point to drive home with dexamethasone is that it, it's special for another reason. Um, it's special because it's designated by the WHO, the World Health Organization, as a essential medication. And what that means is that there's an obligation to have um, this drug available worldwide and a low cost. So it's very accessible to a lot of people from in low-income countries especially who may struggle to get these expensive experimental treatments in. Um, unfortunately, WHO really has no power to enforce this, so it's really scout's honor. Um, so, you know, let's really hope that dexamethasone is kept at a low cost and is always going to be readily available um, to patients who need it, no matter who they are and where they are. Um, and just for a concluding point for uh, this portion of the podcast, uh, convalescent plasma therapy or convalescent plasma transfer. This was actually pretty cool. Um, I had a friend go through COVID a few months ago, and he actually went through this treatment, and he believes it helped him. And um, so the idea here is that you take uh, blood from those who have been infected with COVID and recovered, you spin it down, you take out the watering portion, which is the plasma, which contains the antibodies that their body has raised against the virus, you pull them from multiple people, and you give it to somebody who is struggling with the disease. Um, it's, it's not an unheard of therapy. You do see this in other diseases. Um, this actually was a way that, I think it was tetanus, how it was treated way back when. Um, so it's, it's not a new treatment. And so basically the, the thinking is here is that when you have the antibodies being transferred from that recovered patient into a sick patient, these antibodies are then able to bind free floating virus, um, you know, preventing it from infecting more cells, helping it get cleared out faster. So you do, uh, hopefully reduce the spread within the lungs and throughout the body. And so guys, uh, this is going to conclude the first part uh, the podcast, I believe. Um, I only have about five minutes left. Um, actually, no, I'm going to finish up with burden of disease really quick, then we'll launch into the second one. Um, so when we say burden of disease, it's pretty much 
Like it should be explanatory, like how serious this illness can be to a person in terms of their life. Um, so there can be many measures of it, and uh, one of the measures is the fatality rate. Um, so the fatality rate of SARS-CoV-2 can range from anywhere from slightly under 1% to as large as 8%. Um, it really depends where we are, who we're talking about, um, and any socioeconomic factors at play. It, it, it's a very, um, I guess, individual number, so to speak. It, it's, it's really a lot about context. Not only that, it really depends on your ability to detect the cases and follow up with them. Um, so it's possible that um, these numbers can be lower, even possibly higher, because we haven't really seen all the cases of COVID, you know, that have existed. Um, now, there is a distinction between fatality rate and mortality rate. Um, and this is a point of contention, I believe, this past summer. Um, so fatality rate, also known as the case fatality rate, is essentially the probability of you dying once you've been diagnosed with the condition. Um, mortality rate is really just the probability of you just dying from it randomly. Um, so the distinction lies in that case fatality rate examines only the deaths from confirmed cases. Um, mortality rate looks at all the deaths and compares that to the total number of susceptible individuals within the population. So you already have a dilution based on that. You may have a small number of cases, a lot of people. They're not comparable. Um, so what we say is that case fatality is prognostic. It gives you an idea of where, how the disease may progress, where mortality rate is more statistical. How likely are you to uh, die from the disease compared to heart disease, cancer, etc.? So both can be used as metrics for how well we are responding to the virus, to a pathogen, to an infectious disease, to any disease in general, but you cannot use them interchangeably because they are not the same based on the math. Um, so an example I came up with is that you can probably have few Americans dying from an illness, but those who died may still represent a near 100% fatality for the disease. So again, the metrics are very different. Not only that, um, I do see a lot of people pointing to the so-called or the 98% survival rate um, for the illness. However, the survival rate or the low fatality rate does not really capture the full burden of disease. It doesn't really tell you um, the whole story of what these people went through, the people who got sick went through. It could be losing money, um, you know, being laid off from, or losing their job, or it could be hospitalization, have them go to the ICU, maybe even permanent disability like we saw um, with lung fibrosis, which by the way, the lung transplant, any kind of transplant, then requires lifelong immunosuppressive therapy, and there's always a chance of rejection from there. So the story never just ends with, oh, only a few people died. No, you know, you have to consider all these other cases, and that's why, you know, it, it's, for me, it's kind of silly that people's like, oh, you know, there's a high recovery, and I'm like, well, no, that's not the whole story. That only gives you a portion of the story. So you really can't cherry pick there and just, you know, take it and run with it. Um, so really all this in between, um, really, uh, we call this the morbidity. And that, like I said, it encompasses basically the other portion of the disease. It's not, it's not death. It's what happens when you're sick and what can maybe happen after. Um, and so we really still don't know the long-term implications uh, of COVID. So we do have long haulers that are documented, um, meaning that those who are testing negative for COVID, they're still displaying symptoms of COVID. We don't know why, but it's there. And like I've also previously mentioned, we have cases of MIA, um, <clears throat> MIS um, in adults and children, as well as fibrosis and, you know, the things that come with fibrosis. 
So I just, I really hope that after hearing that you do understand better the difference between fatality rate and mortality rate and really why you can't interchange them and, you know, why you just really should not be focusing on the, you know, 1.4% uh, fatality rate or whatever it may be. So that is going to be where I'm going to stop right now for lecture one. Um, I will go ahead and continue with lecture two. Um, so I really hope that you guys did enjoy uh, the first section and I will see you in lecture in a bit.